Welcome to Photo Geek Weekly, episode 151, recorded on June 16th of 2021. Uh, I'm your host, Don Komarechka, to geek out about photography stuff. Uh, usually, we go through the uh, the weekly news cycle and find the geekiest, nerdiest, most technical or legally or ethical or things that we can just talk about and have opinions on as photo geeks and nerds as we all are. Uh, and you're probably one of them if you're listening to this podcast. So thank you for listening. Um, and with me, as always, every episode, we have a guest photo geek. We've got a new voice on the podcast this week that I'm absolutely thrilled to introduce. Uh, Alistair Jolly, uh, who is one of the uh, the guys behind Smug Mug and Flickr, at least one of the people that you can talk to that uh, sings their praises, that handles community relations, and just kind of gives us a good feeling about those product software uh, offerings. But more than that, uh, really, is when I have conversations with Alistair, uh, sometimes on the record, sometimes off the record, he's been a, uh, a guest on the critique show that I do with Steve Brazel as well. Great opinions there. Um, but he is just a wealth of knowledge and information. And so I am pleased to bring Alistair to the, uh, the podcast. Welcome. Hi there, Don. Really, really excited to be here. What a great opportunity to come and geek out with you. It's one of one of my favorite things to do and what a, you can't think of a better place to do it. So thanks for that uh, wonderful introduction. Well, what are you uh, what are you up to these days? I mean, you're you're out in uh, in the UK, right? Yes, I'm in, in Scotland, as people can hopefully tell from the accent. Um, of course, our headquarters are in San Francisco. Uh, so uh, for the last, you know, how many months have we been under kind of pandemic now? I've been uh, based here at home and not traveling like I typically do, but it's given me some great opportunities with the, the luxury of some, you know, time at home. Um, one of the biggest things was starting Smug Mug Live, our live stream show which uh, you have been a wonderful guest on as is uh, Steve who you mentioned earlier um, and yeah live streaming has been a kind of new thing for me this last year and uh, it's been really a fun way to interact with the community and our audience. There, there's so much good content that is being generated by you know Smug Mug Live but, but also all these creatives that have been kind of holed up at home uh, finding ways to express their creativity there's been a lot of content being generated in terms of live broadcasts and podcasts and so on. Um, so there's there's a wealth of um, sort of inspiration out there. And Smug Mug Live, I think, is, is definitely a good source for that. So thank you for being a champion of that particular avenue. Um, photographically, I mean, uh, how often do you pick up your cameras these days? I, oh. I see I see them behind you, uh, all very neatly positioned on a shelf. Yeah. Is that are, shelf dusty? <laughs> the, the shelf is fairly clean because obviously I live stream and it's on air a lot. So it is clean. But um, those are memory, memories on the shelf behind me, cameras that uh, mean things to me. I'm glad to say that I have a whole working kit in the bag next to me that, uh, yeah, you know, gets used, I would say, almost daily. Uh, I still am very active in the photography world. I have two young kids, so I love to photograph them, but I also love uh, being outside uh, and, and photographing what I can. And in my role at Smug Mug and Flickr, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate to work with some of the best photographers in the world who inspire me on a daily basis to keep uh, keep hitting that trigger button, you know? Yeah, well, and you, you see... You say memories, you know, I've got a, a whole bunch of cameras that, that mean something to me that yeah. they're either on a shelf or they're within view. You know, I've got, uh, I, I love um, 
uh, sort of antiquated cameras. I my, my, one of my favorite old cameras is one from 1926, mm-hmm. a, um, a It's a stereoscopic 3D medium format camera, nice. and they really engineered these things quite nicely. But um, you know, I, I rarely use it because it it takes film, and I, I realized that my love affair with these cameras is partly just the tactile feedback of using Mm -hmm. one of these cameras, having it purely mechanical and just being, I I don't know how it makes me feel more connected to, to the craft in some way, but that's not to say that um, a digital camera cannot offer the same thing. And that brings us into uh, our first story, um, which the Nikon ZFC uh, will be a retro inspired $1,000 APS-C camera report on Petapixel. Now this is a rumor. Um, So uh, only one small image of the camera has leaked. Uh, Nikon Rumors has taken that and extrapolated several mock-ups to anticipate how the new camera will look, at least from the top. Now, leaked images can always be faked too. You know, we got to take this with a grain of salt. Uh, But I looked back at what Nikon had done with the DF, you know, their digital SLR that had retro stylings. I actually really liked that camera. They they downplayed video features and they were taken to task on on that as well because that was, you know, uh, people wanted that. But with a retro styled camera, I really don't necessarily care Mm. about that. I want the tactile still photography uh, thing. How do you feel about this? I mean, do you have any love for the the, the vintage camera gear, and do you want that uh, look and feel in any modern equipment? Yeah, I'm I'm completely in the same camp as yourself on this one. Um, I I didn't I, I I shot Nikon cameras during my career um, when I was was not at Smug Mug Flickr. You know, twenty year career in photography before Smug Mug, but. You know, I shot film cameras, and that those memories that we spoke about earlier on the shelf behind me—they were mostly film cameras. Um, I have a lot of memories I don't own anymore. I still wish I had my Hasselblads, which I started my career with. Um, but I was a big fan of the DF. Um, I had had the opportunity to to photograph with one. Fortunately, I had lots of you know Nikon glass that I could use with it. Um, so yeah, I'm in the camp of enjoying the. The retro feel. I'll tell you the, a story. I, when I switched to mirrorless photography, uh, mirrorless cameras, that was the first time I moved away from Nikon, and you know I moved to to shooting with Fujifilm cameras, and I actually have here the first Fujifilm camera I had, which was the XE2, and what attracted to me about this camera was a digital camera that I suddenly felt nostalgic about, if that makes sense. Yeah. Although it's state-of-the-art technology and like the latest, greatest thing, there was a nostalgia about the fact that it had an aperture dial on the lens and a shutter speed dial on the top and a trigger button. And it was yeah, just Fuji's fantastic. Been doing, uh, you know, they, they've really kind of... Uh, taken that and they're running with that I yeah mean, that, that is full steam ahead they are embracing this retro styling and i think that it's actually helping them because people feel really connected to their fuji cameras they love using them and yes you can talk about image quality and you can look at mtf charts for the lenses and all that but there is something to be said for just the the usability and the feel of a camera in your hands and if that goes back to a nostalgia for the film cameras mm-hmm. then that's that's perfect and that's not for everybody uh, don't get me wrong there's a lot of people that uh, love tapping away on a touch screen on, on the back of their Absolutely. cameras 
that's that's also not me. Uh, I usually turn those features off, uh, you know, unless I absolutely need to use them. But I I look at this and I think, okay, um, there there is potential here for Nikon to uh, kind of embrace in the same way that Fuji has done. Uh, but you know, I also uh, I, I, one of my favorite little cameras is the uh, the Lumix GX9. And it's it's kind of got a kind of simple. Uh, it's got a, a an exposure dial on the top for controlling um, the uh, the uh, over or under exposure your uh, compensation dial, um, and it's a fairly simple design of a camera. I love that. One of the reasons why I like this camera so much is because it just kind of feels vintage. Yeah, uh, I want every camera to at least or every company to have something in that realm. Uh, and I think that we'd be better for it as photographers and even adapting vintage lenses. I've got a whole closet full of really cool old glass. It's not expensive stuff. It's just old. And yeah, it's not going to be perfect. It's not going to be like the, the Lumix 50 millimeter F1.4 lens that's multiple thousands of dollars that I'm lusting over and I really want to add to my collection. But I have my old Canon FD 50 millimeter f1.4 that was my grandfather's lens, uh, you know, from his Canon AE1 that I still, you know, take out once in a while and just have fun with. And I think photography, we need to, as photographers, we need to embrace sort of the fun of the craft. Otherwise, it just feels a heck of a lot like work. Um, <laughs> so you mentioned, though, that you had a whole career for a number of decades as a photographer. What type yep. of stuff did you shoot? Uh, well, for, for most of my career, I was a wedding photographer, wedding and social photography. Um, and then later in the career, moved into sort of commercial photography through building up relationships with venues and establishments like some of the big museums here in Scotland. So, yeah, but most, mostly um, photographs with people in them is what I specialized in. And then started that off in the 90s which you know in the 1900s the late 1900s <laughs> and and then um you know kind of uh, around about 2011 2012 i started helping smug mug uh, kind of establish themselves in europe um and my career path changed from from then on but uh, I, I have the pleasure of working in an industry that i have loved for many many decades well and you know I could never do what what you've done. I mean, I I've tried to you know photograph people. It's just not my forte. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'll, I'll photograph friends and family, and that, that's fine. Um, and I've second shot a number of weddings, but I would never want to deal with bridezilla. Um, <laughs> that would not. It would just take all of the fun out of it. And yes, you would have the wonderful moments, uh, and you'd be able to just totally make dreams come true for people. Um, but then there's the nightmares mixed in, and yeah, so I, I'd rather. It's, it can be a minefield. I, I think it, I think it's still one of the hardest genres of photography, to be honest. Um, you know, where you have to be every type of photographer, from you know portraits to landscapes to documentary, but you also have to be a counselor and you know <laughs> manage people and manage their personalities and and that side of it. So. Um, yeah, it's, it's it's there's a lot of skill sets in wedding photography, and and it's also one of the real reasons I think there's a lot of burnout in wedding photographers. You know, it's yeah. it's hard to maintain that level of intensity for for many many years. You know, I was in the industry for you know myself for about sixteen years, which you know for is, is I, you know is a long time in wedding photography. But there's many people who have been doing it for for decades and decades. But um, yeah, I. I I, I still miss it, but I, I won't be going back anytime soon. 
<laughs> I don't blame you. Yeah. Uh, now, now back to the, the first story. If there was one feature on a retro-styled modern mirrorless camera that you would love to see, what would it be? Ooh, do you know, a lot of the times the cameras, even the retro cameras, they still have so many features that sometimes it's it's almost been able to dial it back and take some features away, which a lot of the these kind of retro cameras are really good at. Um, the, you know, for me, if I, if I can kind of go back slightly to what we were talking about, you know, it's great having these cameras that make you feel nostalgic, but you could have the best camera in the world. And if you don't enjoy photographing with it, you're not going to be motivated to go do it. Right. And for me, like, so this little, this old XE2 Fuji film camera that I had, the DF and potentially this new ZFC, you know, if, if it makes you want to pick it up and go photograph with it, then it's going to be the best camera you've ever owned, irrelevant of what it looks like. And if you, are inspired to pick up your camera because of all the buttons and the dials and all those features, then great. That's what works for you. Uh, for me, I like something a little bit simpler. Um, I, I'm struggling to come up with a feature that I would love to see in a retro camera. Um, I love it when companies do things like uh, manual trigger releases where you can screw in an old cable trigger release rather than needing oh, yeah. something else that needs charged or plugged in. So when they go super basic and super retro like that, I'm a huge fan. Oh, and so that reminds me of a feature that I would love to see. It would be a risky move for a manufacturer to do this. They might have to make a special edition version of something, um, but uh, it's not uh, without precedent, um, Epson, when Epson used to make cameras, they made one that had a mechanical shutter uh, uh, cocking mechanism mm. on on the camera itself, and you you could uh, you could move that lever, uh, and you would have to in order for you to take the next shot, just like you would have to do on a lot of vintage uh, film cameras. And I could see somebody, may, maybe not Nikon, maybe not Fuji. I'm surprised Leica has never come up with a camera with one of these features mm. on, on their uh, rangefinder cameras because it would really fit the, the motif and the styling and the ideas um, that uh, Leica's uh, owners would love. I just think that would be fun. Uh, and you know what? Maybe make it optional where you could, if you wanted to shoot rapid fire, as we often want to with digital cameras, um, you could override that with uh, an electronic, uh, you know, automatic um, shutter priming mechanism and so on. But to have that as just an option, the tactile feedback on that, uh, I think it, maybe it's just the hipster in me that would think that's kind of <laughs> neat. But uh, hey, that there's a hipster in me somewhere. Hey, there's, uh, a, just, there's, there's a huge advantage to that, though. You obviously can't see it here on the podcast, but... On, on all my Fujifilm cameras, especially the ones I shoot with now, the X-Pro series, which they're all kind of rangefinder style, so that they're that kind of looky like a kind of, kind of setup. I add a thumb grip to all all my cameras, you know, which replicates that, that you know, cock lever, right? But it's a great ergonomic feature as well as being a cool retro feature. It's a great place, especially with big hands like mine, to rest that thumb in that little lever um yeah i'd be all so for if it that. was a functional lever uh then you know more power to the uh you know the, the design yeah. and the ergonomics of the camera so um it doesn't look like we're going to see that on this particular camera but uh who knows uh, if they continue going down this path i would love to see that reintroduced into the digital space yeah um 
Let's move on to our second story uh, from F Stoppers, written by Andy Day. When will Instagram tell us how much money it makes from your stolen content? Now, that, that's kind of a charged title um, based on what's going on here. And in, in essence, there are a lot of accounts on I'm not just going to narrow this down to Instagram. I'm going to say every social media platform in some way, shape or form. There are accounts that basically scrape content off the Internet that they think is going to gather a larger audience uh, and pool that all together without the permission of the people that have taken those photos or created that artwork or the, the copyright holders in general. And so they uh, put this content together. Maybe they'll slap some inspirational quotes on top of it, or maybe they'll find that already done by somebody else that's scraped it and scraped it off of there as well. There's a whole culture yep. of um, essentially copyright infringement that um, that gathers surprising number of people that follow for this collection of infringed material. Um, but there's a reason why there's a big audience there because it's beautiful work. Uh, and it, well, it is stolen into a lot of these quote unquote curated collections, um, uh, of somebody that found it and decided to pool stuff together. Um, it's, uh, it's unfortunate how often that comes up in, um, in just in general searches of sort of, uh, community posts or things when you're just scrolling through and you see things that belong to some of these because they might match your interests and they've gotten a lot of likes or comments and, uh, Instagram's algorithms, which by the way, was interesting. Um, uh, there was, a. a a blog post by uh, penned by the Instagram head Adam uh, Mossery, Mossery, however you pronounce it. Um, and, uh, you know, yesterday it was down, but today it's back up. Maybe they took it down because there was a bit too much of the secret sauce being being revealed in there. Um, but Instagram revealed how they how they handle some of the um, sort of the the flow of content as it's presented to you because there's algorithms that you know, it's not just, okay, who you follow and what the latest posts were. That was Instagram maybe a decade ago. Um, but now it's much more uh, sort of, I don't know, cultivated in a way, uh, very carefully groomed to uh, to show you. And it's almost like a bonsai tree of information. It's not just let grow wild anymore. Um, so there's information about the post, your history of interacting with the person who posted, your own activity, information about the person who posted, and so many more things that they don't really break down much farther. Um, but a lot of these um, sort of uh, infringing accounts boil to the surface quite often. And uh, so I want to get your, your thoughts on, on that. Uh, and how as content creators, we might be able to fight against this misuse of our work, but also kind of a misuse of the platforms in general. Um, Instagram is, uh, they, they can't really do anything uh, about it unless you as a creative go forward and say, that's my work, send a DMCA notice or fill out their copyright complaint form, uh, what have you. And, uh, and from that point forward, then they can take action. But if they, uh, start working on their own to remove any of this stuff, they are immediately culpable for everything that they don't remove or that they accidentally remove. And so they have to take ownership of their decisions under the DMCA rules in the United States, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. And there are safe harbor exemptions for websites like Instagram or Flickr and SmugMug for that matter uh, that host third party content. Um, so long as 
they respond to takedown notices as they are given in a timely manner. And, uh, and so there's, that's a whole other discussion. But wh- what do you think about the, the position that Instagram is in here? Should they be actively promoting this stuff? Or is it really just their algorithms at work? Yeah, it's, I mean, I'm in such an interesting position. You know, I'm, I'm a content creator. I, you know, work for a company that has a platform that hosts content. Uh, and we also use social media, right, for our own marketing purposes. So, you know, we touch many, many areas of this. Um, it is a difficult one when there's so, on, on in the case of Instagram, there's so few humans involved in that curation, right? You know, there's so much content being added there. It is heavily, heavily skewed on that algorithm. And although they gave us a peek behind the the curtain of what that algorithm might look like, I'm pretty sure it's already different than the one they described a few days ago, right? I'm sure just like Google's (laughs) algorithms, you know, they might even change daily. Yeah, absolutely. And I I think even within the organization, there's probably not, um, you know, one single person that, is completely on top of how it works, but um, it's it's unfortunate. You you mentioned that you use the word that the the share these kind of cultivated content with you. I would actually go a bit stronger than that and say they actually target you with that content because you know these you know in Instagram's case they are profiling you right. They are using the way you use a platform, what you, how you interact with the platform, who you interact with to create this profile of who you are and then target you with content that you, they think you will like, like the algorithm thinks you will like. And therefore there's this disconnect between like the, the reality of, of what's actually being seen and what you might like to the, the kind of legal aspect of is that stuff even, you know, owned by the, the, the channel that that's sh- being shared with you. So it is um, a real downside of the lack of human involvement in that uh, curation and targeting. And that's not even getting involved with the, you know, the people breaking the copyright in the first place where many of them, I, I firmly believe many of them don't realize they're, they're, breaking copyright like these well people, yeah they just found it on the internet yeah, so it must be free it must right? be free right it's shared and you know i'm going to put all these lovely things together and i'll put my own words on it and you know it's just social it's you know i'm not i'm not copywriting stealing anything because it's just social media um well, and there's but pe- people insist on infringing on copyright now they don't know that they're infringing on copyright but they insist on doing this on, on a constant basis right like they create entire accounts just for this yeah. um and I, I've got a really hard time uh, making sure that my images don't show up on said accounts. And yesterday, I was in a bit of a mood when I was going through <laughs> my uh, my reports. Uh, from There's a company that I use called infringement.report. That's their uh, your URL. Yep. Uh, and infringement.report, um, I pay a monthly fee. It's, you know, uh, it's in the double digits. I can't remember exactly what it is. But I can upload, I think, 300 of my images and uh, then they'll just scour the internet and find out where they are online. Now, they have no uh, uh, no interest in pursuing infringements. They just discover them. And that's why I, I like this particular service, because I've already established relationships with lawyers in Canada and the US. And yeah. um, I use a separate company called PickRights uh, for a lot of uh, international claims, and they've been doing well for me too. Um, but uh, I... 
I found a whole bunch of, they, I guess they tweaked their algorithm of discovery. Uh, and they found a whole bunch of infringements on LinkedIn that I previously had not seen before people using, um, my images sometimes even as avatars, as their profile photo, <laughs> uh, oftentimes as the cover photo across the top. Uh, and so I decided just to, you know, a lot of these, I just send takedown notices to if it's an individual uh, it's not representative of of a brand it's you know, somebody working for a company sure but it's not that company uh, themselves unless it's somebody hanging out their shingle as a you know a graphic designer or you know if, if their personal account is also the brand's account then they get a letter from my lawyer uh, typically uh, and I set those ones aside, but I sent tons of takedown notices. I just decided to take some screenshots and share that. So maybe I'll put a link to that mm-hmm. uh, on um, on the show notes at photogeekweekly.com where you can see uh, some of them, uh, the stuff that I've shared has probably already been taken down. Um, but I did uh, do screen captures on some of it. The thing is, um, if you're not actively uh, sort of correcting people's behavior on this, people will just continue to go and go and go. And just, I found four of my images on one Facebook page yesterday uh, that just, you know, shared a whole bunch of my, I think it was water droplet images uh, that they might've found somewhere online in a legitimate use. And they took them, they harvested them and they put them on their own Facebook account with no permissions or compensation whatsoever. And so I sent four takedown notices um, to Facebook to that end. And they're now down. Thing is a lot of websites like Facebook will have a, uh, a strike policy. I'm not sure exactly what it is, and there might be an algorithm behind it as well. Uh, but I've gotten uh, frantic emails from people saying, my Facebook account is locked. How could you do this to me? Well, I, I didn't. And it's very unlikely that Facebook would uh, lock an account after a single infringement. So you've probably done something before, uh, or I have sent numerous to you. And yeah, some in some cases, um, I say, you know, it's legitimate. I'm not backing down from this, but uh, I'll send you a retroactive invoice um, for a license that's only, you know, uh, uh, backward facing, right? You, you can't use the images moving forward, but it would uh, delegitimize my copyright claims. So you actually had the usage to, to use those images. And if you're willing to pay that invoice, then I'm willing to rescind my claim of copyright, but in no other way. It's so unfortunate. That's how I can sometimes uh, get compensated for the use of my work and the thing is if i do that then that person will think twice about sharing content again but if nobody does it ever then this problem will continue and i don't think it's instagram's uh it's not their responsibility to solve this problem the problem is created by us not defending our work would you agree with that yeah i mean i mean we need to educate people that, that you know copyright is still a thing and we need to break that chain of normalizing this uh action of just if it's on the internet it's free game it's just social we need to break that chain of people's thoughts that it's okay you know many 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 people who do this really you know there's no malice intended there's no you know um outright thought that they're breaking copyright but we need to educate people so that they realize that and so people do think twice there's obviously people out there who blatantly do it um on purpose um and those people we need to come down you know strongly on and and hit them with with every opportunity to um 
correct them and punish them for that as we can as a you know as a speaking as the brand speaking as smug mug and flicker you know we are a photo brand who hosts people's photographs so we are the custodian of people's photographs on our platforms and we make sure you know we have to be squeaky clean right we have to be uh whenever we share content we share in it you know for marketing purposes, we, we obviously have all our, our social channels. We make sure we have permission. We make sure we give attribution, um, you know, do all those things um, to make sure that, you know, we are, um, you know, walking the walk and talking the talk, as they say, you know, and we want to be at the forefront of normalizing the fact that, you know, if you're using someone's photograph, there should be a credit at least uh, or some kind of compensation for that, as well as obviously there being permission. So something we're very aware of as a brand. Um, and, and on the Flickr platform, you know, we're also at the 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 end where we see people using our platform incorrectly you know people creating accounts and and sharing images that are not theirs and you know our our stewardship of Flickr has not been that long you know we're what about four years in now of of owning Flickr but we've made some great strides uh, in that area building up a whole uh, trust and safety team as we call it that works on many angles of making our uh, platform uh, safer in, in many, many, many ways. So, uh, yeah, it's something and, we and take I, serious. I, I send takedown notices to Flickr, too. I mean, yeah, don't they, get me wrong. They come straight uh, to me. Did, did, did you know that? Oh, just they go straight just to yours. You. Just your ones. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. I'm joking. I'm joking. Uh, no, but uh, I, I sent two of them earlier this month on uh, June 5th and June 6th. I'm just looking at my inbox right now. Uh, and uh, it, it's a fairly fast response uh, from you guys. In other cases, I'll send a takedown notice to an internet hosting provider in Russia, and it just goes into a black hole. Yeah, I'm sure. Right? Uh, and so it can be really hard in some cases to, to get these responses. I, I don't know if Flickr has a, um, uh, a DMCA form to fill out. I just, I always, I've got a pre-made template uh, with my name and my contact information, and I just swap out the, the links as are necessary yeah. to make the proper claim, and I send that away. You know, we're, but, uh, we're, we're very active and, you know, behind all those uh, interactions are our human team. You know, it's not it's not an algorithm looking at your email and trying to uh, line up all the dots. You know, we, we've got, you know, a, a wonderful trust and safety team and customer support team who take this matter very, very seriously. And um, we'll make sure that, um, you know, people's work is protected. What would be an interesting feature to see on Flickr, Instagram, Facebook, Pinterest, you know, TikTok, any, any platform, um, Twitter as well would be um, for the platform to provide a tool to us as creatives as a reverse image search within their uh, infrastructure. And, you know, I use Google Images, uh, which has a reverse image search, Bing as well, Yandex, which is surprisingly good at a reverse image search. It's the Russian search engine that nobody's really used outside of Russia or Eastern Europe or China. Um, but um, their algorithm is different and it'll find different things, sometimes in my own backyard, sometimes in the Ukraine. So um, it's uh, I, I use those tools and they'll find things on Flickr. They'll find things on Instagram or Facebook. And uh, and yes, I use infringement.report for that too, but there's so many different vectors that I will uh, utilize. It would be so great. Uh, these algorithms exist in you know a dozen different ways already from third parties. If the first party 
you know, Facebook, you know, for an example. And I think they tease that they might be doing this uh, for content creators or for brands in order to help understand where their brand is being used or misused on that platform. I would love to have access to a tool that I could just upload one of my images and see where it is on that platform. Um, you know, Google, when they first rolled out Google Plus um, way back when, they had a feature, I think it was called Ripples, um, where when you shared something, and then somebody else shared it. And then a lot, like they, they were an influencer or there was a lot of people that shared from there. You would see it all kind of spring off of it and you could see the flow of where everything was being shared. It was a really cool tool that they ended up scrapping at some point. Um, and uh, I, I liked it. And that was sharing within the existing API uh, where you're allowed to share. Uh, and that's fine. If I post something on Facebook and somebody hits the, the share button, that's, that's allowed. That's, you know, it's part of the system. But when they take something down and share it independently, they scrape it away and put it somewhere else. I want to know about it. And I wish these platforms would provide such a tool. Now, none of them do right now. Uh, I don't know how much work it would be to, to implement something like that. Obviously, it's not a priority because you know what it's going to do is it's just going to make more work for them on the back end because it's going to create a heck of a lot more, uh, you know, employment opportunities and cost involved in having bodies and chairs reviewing DMCA takedown notices. So I understand why there's not an incentive for them to do so. Maybe it has to be government mandated or something that these tools are available to us. I have no idea what the answer uh, is, aside from revising the Copyright Act in various countries. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting tool. As you see, the technology already exists. Um, as far as integrating that into something like Flickr, I, I've not been aware of, of conversations along those lines of having some kind of, uh, you know, reverse engineering of, of finding your, your photographs off the platform or even on the platform itself. So, um, yes, yeah, it's, it's certainly something I'll, I'll take some feedback with. Some of some of the technology you talk about, though, of of you know looking at your database of images and and analyzing it in that way. Um, you know, it, as you say, it hasn't been a priority or it hasn't reached the top of that roadmap yet. And, you know, it's still fairly early days for us with Flickr, and you know. I'm, I'm proud to say that a lot of our focus has been on uh, finding other types of images that are, are more important to remove from our platform. Um, and, you know, a lot of our trust and safety team, we've, we've been quite vocal about some of the work they've been doing there to, um, you know, trace and track the, the type of images we don't want shared um, without being too explicit about what I'm talking about. But, yeah, you know, it's uh, a lot of work to I be done. I, I know um, that there is burnout from people at Facebook. I saw an article, this is a while back, but I'm sure it's still true, of uh, images that get that get flagged or videos that get flagged of really obscene stuff. Yeah. Uh, and we're talking like war crimes type of type of things that get shared on platforms without giving too much detail. Um, but that has to be reviewed by a person. Could you imagine being the person that has to review that kind of content on a daily basis? That That is not a job I wish for anybody. Yeah. But there are people behind the scenes on all of our social media platforms that are removing that content before it gets to our eyes. And thank you to those. Um, I'll, you know, I want to call them frontline people to, to keep our sanity and, uh, and innocence because you never know who's going to be uh, watching that at well, what age. So I, I can imagine what it, like, it looks like because I know the team here at Flickr who do that. I know the people personally... And and it's something we're very, very proud of. Um, 
we've written many articles recently uh, clearly stating our position that you know Flickr will not be a home for what we call CSAM, so child sexual abuse material, and that has certainly been our focus. We want to rid the internet of child sexual abuse material, uh, and we're working with organisations um, across the world, um, not just to remove the the images, but to to um, you know. Um, bring justice <laughs> where you know to the people investigate that are, you know yeah, identify yeah. The, uh, the the parties involved and uh, and let the legal framework in wherever country it is take yeah. over from there which it's, is i mean that, that that's one of the unsung um you know wonderful things about platforms like Flickr. it's not just removing that content it's the, the the justice that you can be a part of and you are actively trying to pursue uh so kudos to you guys for yeah. uh, for making a difference there unfortunately some of that technology of the databases that we have means that it doesn't have to constantly be looked at by humans you know we have um you know the the understanding of what a lot of these images are they're historical images that we know of so the 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 technology that we have built into our platform can find those images and and set off a whole chain of events that you know ends up with with people being put in jail basically so um but yeah though the members of our trust and safety team are very very special people incredible people who should be um recognized and applauded very highly for the work that they do well, thank you for uh, kind of shedding a bit of a light on that. You yeah, know, it, it's uh, it's something we don't often get to talk about, and you know, we kind of went down a bit of a rabbit hole from that <laughs> Instagram story into that. But I think it was well worth it to to, to go there and uh, know how much is happening behind the scenes. Yeah. All right, let's go into our next story here. Um, it's tangentially photography related. I mean, we're talking on computers right now and we edit our images and we do everything. The final mile is the computers that we use. And so <laughs> when I saw from DP Review um, that Razer has announced the new Blade 14 laptop with AMD Ryzen 9 CPU and up to an RTX 3080 GPU. Uh, so that's like flagship. I'm sure it's the, the mobile variant yeah. of such a small device. But um, that looks like it's packing a huge punch. And I almost bought a Razer Blade um, when I was buying my uh, Surface Book 3. And I was balancing the options. And um, I kind of wish that I had gone uh, with whatever the, the Razer's um, offering was at the time. But... Part of it also comes down to the aesthetics. I kind of like the uh, the gray finish of the Surface Book. Um, the keyboard is sort of second to none in the laptop space on that device. And so the usability comes into play as well. Um, and I was looking at this thing. And could you imagine um, the uh, 7 nanometer uh, Ryzen 9 5900HX processor, which is sort of the, the best you can get in, in a small size like that with, um, you know, it goes 3.3 gigahertz uh, across all the cores, but uh, 4.6 gigahertz uh, as its max boost, which is actually very important for uh, a lot of creative workflows where applications are still single threaded for, uh, you know, a lot of the behind the scenes stuff that just yeah. hasn't been updated over time. And so it's looking great. I'm thinking this is going to be a phenomenal 14 inch laptop with a, an RTX 3080 uh, and it's got a, a terabyte of um, of user replaceable storage in there, which I thought was wonderful. So you can swap that out for two terabytes if you want, or faster storage down the road. Everything is looking great. So you're getting your credit card out, and then it's baked in <laughs> with 16 gigabytes yeah. of RAM, soldered onto the board that's not user replaceable, and no option to go 32 gigabytes or more. And it's just that. Ah. 
So close. You had me. You had me except for that final thing. Because when I'm doing creative workflows for focus stacking, and I'm dealing with 47 megapixel images right now, and I know I'll be dealing with higher megapixel images down the road too. um, 16 isn't enough. Uh, You know, 32, I think would be the bare minimum to get in order to future proof your investment, because you know, you're going to buy a machine like this, it's going to last you for at least a couple of years, as you are upgrading all sorts of other things and doing even more and pushing the limits of your creative workflows, you want a computer that handles that for you. So what do you think about this announcement? Uh, But also, what do you use for a computer and for your editing workflow? And, uh, you know, what works for you? Yeah, uh, it's, it's a killer machine, right? I mean, as you say, it was ticking all the boxes until that final one that you mentioned. And I can't wrap my head around why something as important to many of us as RAM is is so kind of, um, you know, sort of handicapped in some ways. With, with it's, it's not going to make more heat, right? At least marginally more, but it's not going to make, it's not going to break yeah. the deal. It's not going to take up a whole lot more space, especially if you just use higher density chips too. I mean, um, if, it, if it was a space thing, then make, make it bigger like i would much rather have a slightly bigger laptop with you know with the the technology i wanted inside it 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 drives me a little bit crazy in fact that you know the the drive is to make the device as small and portable as possible you know it's that's fine if it's an you know something you're using um just as an everyday computer but when you're working on a high-end pro machine and you're doing you know large amounts of processing power then you know size is almost irrelevant right you know it's uh, to to solder in ram fair enough if they gave us the option to have 32 but to limit it to 16 i just find that hard to get my head around I, I had to pay extra for the Surface Book 3. I had to go for a business version um, mm. that had the NVIDIA Quadro GPU because it had some RTX features that were not available in the consumer version, which I thought might be helpful for um, video uh, processing and uh, possibly if any filters in Photoshop or other programs decide to utilize that. Uh, just as you know, so much of the GPU is used computationally these days, uh, and more and more software is using it. Whatever you've got at your disposal, a lot of programmers uh, will say, "Okay, well, uh, you know, profile the uh, GPU. Does it have uh, these features? Okay, we'll just flick that on in the software, and and we'll utilize that." And that's I love when software is designed that way. It's happening more and more frequently. So that's great. Uh, and to have those features now in this this machine, it's fantastic. It like I said, it checks, uh, checks every box, uh, Wi-Fi 6E, Bluetooth 5.2, uh, THX spatial audio support, uh, you know, HDMI 2.1 port, uh, and a headphone jack and all like all the ports you need you, uh, two USB 3.2, uh, type a ports. Um, uh, not sure why they went with type a instead of type C ports, but it's, it's a material you got your USB yep. ports, you got everything. Um, and I use my my laptop, I just connect it to the Surface dock, and it's got a 4K display. It's got all the keyboard, mouse, webcam, all the accoutrements, microphone um, here to replace a desktop. Uh, I've even got it connected to a Stream Deck and an ATEM Mini, and it all just connects in. Uh, the heart of the machine doesn't need to be a big, beastly desktop computer anymore. And yep. I've got one um, that I, I haven't used since I bought this smaller machine. My computer has 32 gigabytes of RAM. If it had an option at the time, the highest end option, I, you know, within reason, but if I had to pay a couple of hundred dollars more 
to double that to 64 gigabytes, I would have done it then. Yeah. Right. Uh, and I think that's one of those big things that uh, Razer is missing out on. And yes, they have bigger uh, 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 Razer blades. This is just the 14 inch model that they've mm-hmm. refreshed. And so in their bigger ones, they do offer 32 gigabytes as an option, but they don't offer 64. Uh, and so in, in all of these cases, I just, just give it to me as an option. You know what? Even if I don't need it, let me buy it. You'll make profit on that in the end. Yeah. Uh, and so anyhow, there we are. Uh, off more margin. RAM, please. But your que- your question was what about you know, what I currently use? Um, so I'm in, I'm in the, the Apple camp. So I, I run Macs. And um, it's interesting. I, I, run a th- I run 32 gig at the moment RAM on my machine. And it's funny, you and I do a lot of similar things, right? We basically produce a TV show from our desktop, right? We we live stream, we we edit, we have multiple camera feeds coming in, we have multiple audio channels. We also do high-end creative stuff, photography, videography, uh, producing, you know, podcasts and all that audio stuff. And like you, I don't have a desktop. I have a, a MacBook Pro, um, which is incredible to think what we're doing um, with with a MacBook or a laptop at the moment, but I don't think uh, I could do it with 16 gigabyte of RAM, that's for sure. I'm patiently waiting for an upgrade uh, to this machine. This one's um, uh, a 2018 model, so I'm waiting on the new, allegedly allegedly there's a 16 inch uh, MacBook Pro coming with the, the M1 series chips in it, so that's what I'm waiting on. Yeah, and, and I've heard a lot of people saying that those um, M1 chips are revolutionary in terms of how much power you can pack into a yep. small space. And Apple was purportedly going to announce them at the uh, WWDC, uh, which was a week or Last two and a half ago. ago. Yeah, so and, uh, you know, th- there was tags in the uh, YouTube live stream that indicated that that was going to be part of the announcement. So people were t- uh, trying to uh, ha- get uh, hypothesize, yeah. uh, you know, what was going to be announced and it wasn't. And that could be, uh, I can pretty well guarantee it's due to the global chip shortage that Supply. we are facing yeah, right now. Definitely. Um, They're trying to get their, you know, their kind of warehouses ready to, to launch new products. And the, the whole world is suffering from a lack of supply of, of many things, one of them being, you know, chips and silicon. Well, but it goes, it's not that the chip manufacturers aren't operational. I mean, they are for the most part, but the core, uh, like the raw elements that go into the chips yep. are mined in a lot of third world countries that had to close down or greatly limit their mining operations um, in order to extract the raw materials that then go into designing chips of all types and batteries and so on and so forth and and also as as companies become more and more ethical about where they source these materials then they're not as easy to get at the volume and the price they've been used to when they've been using um you know you know places that perhaps weren't the most environmentally friendly or ethical in the way that they mined these materials so it's it's not a surprise that you know, uh, shaking that whole world up, as well as the the difficulty we've had with, um, you know, ships being stuck in canals and all that type of thing over <laughs> over the last few months. That everything's slightly behind where we perhaps wished it would be. But yeah, I'm I'm excited to to upgrade to the the Apple, Apple Silicon. Uh, one one of the great things I've heard, especially for those of us who who live stream and, and use audio, is they're super quiet. Um, this machine. 
even just now as I'm, I'm talking to you and for those that can't see, we, you and I are using video at the moment. We're using audio. My, my fan is, is going big time because it's, you know, pushing out a lot of stuff at the moment. So I've heard wonderful things about the M1 chip. It's super quiet. They've done an incredible work at uh, heat management within those machines. So I'm excited to, to have a quieter machine. And with as much memory as you can get uh, oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> uh, and, you know, Apple do make a premium on that uh, RAM when you add it, but... Um, oh, you know, when you when you double the amount of memory and it, it's adding like $700 to yeah, the price tag of the machine, you know that those chips don't cost Apple $700. No, you know? it's, it's a huge, a huge <laughs> margin. But let's talk about the price of the Razor Blade, though. I mean, that has a huge premium on it as well. You know, the Razor stuff tends to be on the expensive side, but, you know, if you max that out, it's it's nearly, what, nearly 3,000 US, right? Well, the, the base model starts at what's uh, 17, 1800. Uh, yeah. And that's that's with a uh, uh, lesser processor or at least a lesser GPU. And uh, uh, when, yeah, when you bring that up, this is a 14 inch, very slim, uh, portable, it's a sleek and elegant device. But yeah, when you bring that all the way up to its maximum uh, value, it, uh, it hits uh, just about $3,000. And who knows what the European market would charge for that because you've got all of your, uh, fancy fat. taxes on yeah. luxury items. So once, once we add fat onto that, that's going to be an expensive machi- machine here in the UK for sure. That's that's a premium account, and to then have doubts about the you know the the future proofing of it, you know, it, it, it's no surprise that you didn't uh, you didn't make that purchase. Um, yeah, have you I, used have you used the keyboard in those machines? I I haven't. No, yeah. I I've, I've heard mixed things about yeah. those keyboards. They, they um, look really short, really short travel. So if you're someone who does a lot of writing on your laptop, I'm not sure how much love you'd be given that keyboard. That's why I like the Surface Book because it, it kind of folds into a bit of a wedge, right? Like it doesn't, the screen doesn't fall flat on the keys. So the keys don't have to be depressed into the keyboard. And you could have another fraction of a millimeter of key travel because the keys can be, you know, that much larger. Mm-hmm. And that does make a difference in typing. Absolutely. Uh, you know, sometimes I'll just disconnect my uh, my Surface from all the uh, gadgetry in my office and go sit on a porch swing in my backyard and type emails there because it's, you know, it helps my sanity. Um, and having a good keyboard when you're not at your desk is always an advantage. Yeah, and I say that as someone who hates the keyboard on his MacBook Pro. Uh, <laughs> I've heard they've improved it on the the new ones that are coming down the line. I, I work almost exclusively off a, a Bluetooth uh keyboard just because i can't i can't yeah i the short uh, travel thing is i do a lot of typing uh and i've got a a keyboard uh, asio makes uh this retro keyboard and it just again it's the the hipster in me that it's got like a wood grain finish on it and um just because i mean if i'm typing all day i might as well enjoy the experience i knew you Um, would have that (laughs) yeah and I, i actually found that there's somebody on etsy that makes complete total steampunk designed keyboards uh, made to order um, with, uh, you know, just all sorts of, it it goes over the top. It it is functional. Um, Like you've got uh, a bunch of like uh, high voltage tungsten uh, lights uh, on it. And uh, it's, it's just, it's weird. It's wonderful. And you can build them around um, a Cherry MX Blue keyboard, which are the really clickety clackety um, uh, technical keyboards, which I want. But then I'd never be able to type anything on a call like this because I'd have to mute myself every time I would oh press a keystroke. Don, I actually, so. in, in my studio here, 
my son has a gaming keyboard with blue keys, blue cherry keys, and they drive me insane. Like the especially when you're gaming, right? He's just frantically bashing these keys, and it's so loud. But yeah, they they are cool to type on. They're lovely, lovely. <laughs> and to in type a way, on. everybody else. And, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, our our final story, um, also from DP Review. See the first images of NASA's Juno uh, spacecraft as it uh, as it sailed past Jupiter's giant moon Ganymede, and. Uh, so Juno has been, uh, we, we launched that spacecraft uh, just about a decade ago, and then yep. it reached Jupiter a few years after that, um, or it started activating its uh, equipment uh, a while after, and it's still going. Uh, yeah. And so I think it's been uh, in orbit around Jupiter for nine years, right? Something like that, yeah. yeah. I think The transit time of however months uh, it took to, to, to get there, yeah. uh, or a year or whatever, but... Um, and so it's been an active scientific instrument for a long time. Its mission is nearing its end. Next month, I believe, it's going to be plunging into the take Jupiter a dive. atmosphere. Yep. <laughs> and I don't know what kind of imagery we're going to get back from that before it completely disintegrates into Jupiter's atmosphere. Um, but I'm sure we'll have something magical. Um, before that, this might be its uh, uh, penult- uh, penultimate performance here. Yeah. We have some images of Ganymede. We don't have it all yet. Um, but these are just beautiful. I love talking about space imagery. Oh, yeah. uh, the, the stuff that we can create as a as a society, as mankind, um, is is just beautiful. Um, it's hard to now, comprehend sometimes. You know the 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 scale of the achievement that we've done in space is sometimes just almost you know hard to believe and you know maybe that's why there's so many people don't believe it but let's not go down that let's not go down that path um you know these this this imagery is is incredible we're you know to 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 talk about our brand i I hate to do it but you know we're so so honored that nasa you know has a several wonderful Flickr accounts and you know the imagery they put on on their Flickr accounts is just incredible and this one i don't know if it's made Flickr yet but this image is uh, something that I stared at for far too long. Oh, and I'm glad that a lot of the stuff, uh, unless it's with some private collaboration that might have some extra strings attached, most NASA imagery is put into the public domain. Yep. Uh, you know, for the for the greater good of uh, of society, uh, for all to benefit from. Yeah. And so I love that. Um, yep. And this image right now that we're looking at is just a preliminary image, and it's still amazing, but it's black and white. Um, a lot of these spacecraft have simply black and white cameras. They don't have a, uh, a Bayer filter or a, an X-Trans, a, a color filter array in front mm-hmm. of the, the sensor itself to take color images, or I don't think Foveon has made it to space yet either. So they have different filters that they put in front of the black and white camera, and they take an image with multiple uh, filters, sometimes even outside of the visible spectrum, uh, in order to see interesting things and combine them together afterwards. So uh, NASA writes, to obtain Ganymede images as Juno rotated, the camera acquired a strip at a time um, as the target passed through the field of view. These image strips were captured separately through red, green, and blue filters to generate the final image product. The strips must be stitched together and the colors aligned. So even for an individual uh, color spectrum, uh, and they're not saying exactly which one they they chose for the the first uh, readout here, but you're rendering it as sort of like a a grid panorama uh, as the spacecraft goes across. And you have to do that three times 
And then you've got to send all that data back to Earth, uh, which is, who knows, maybe that's why it's going to take a month before its next operation of plunging into Jupiter. Um, And that makes me kind of sad that the stuff that it captures on its descent into Jupiter, it's only going to send back a very, very small portion of that because yeah, it, it takes so long yeah. to send the data back and it'll be, you know, uh, uh, you know, a puddle in a cloud <laughs> somewhere. Uh, it reminds me, it reminds me of, have you seen the footage of the, the photographer who drove their or flew their drone into the volcano in Iceland? That's my pick. That's what I think is going to happen. You know, is it, is it <laughs> the last moments as it melts and dies in the, in the atmosphere? But Do you think they're doing that computational maths, you know, that stitching? Do you think they're doing that on board or are they sending back the the raw channels and then it's being uh, put together here? um, A a bit of both. They they have to figure out exactly where the camera is going to be scanning. Right. Mm -hmm. So mathematically, I mean, if we can if we can send up a spacecraft that ends up into Jupiter orbit and to know exactly where everything is and the planets and to actually get a photograph of Ganymede remotely because of the time delay. I mean, what what is the time delay to Mars? Something like nine minutes or so. And it's I don't know what it is to Jupiter, but obviously it's greater. you have to have everything properly pre-calculated and you've got to have the math down perfectly yeah. to figure out exactly where that camera is going to be pointed. And so they can uh, they can calculate this. We have the maths to do that. Um, and from that point forward, uh, the stitching together and all that, that that's going to happen on Earth. You just yeah. send the raw data back once you've captured it in camera. Um, and I'm sure or- they're using more than 16 gigabyte of RAM to do that. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Probably. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what the final image is. And sometimes, uh, I don't know if they do this all the time, but I've seen some uh, data dumps, especially from uh, the, the Mars rovers, where they'll just provide the raw data uh, for anybody to go ahead and grab and process and make whatever they want uh, of that. And they've done this from some Hubble imagery yep. as well. Uh, I hope they do that with this because I'd yeah, love to I'm see. I'm sure you'll play with that. Um, how amateur uh, astronomers or you know people such as myself or you could take that data and just push those pixels to to see what you can create. Yeah. It's all in the public domain, right? So there's no reason Absolutely. for us to, uh, to to not play with what's been given to us. It's it's quite inc- it's been an incredible journey. Um, I, I love the naming of of uh, the, the craft itself, Juno. Um, having looked into some of the naming of of the space missions, so Jupiter, you know, looking at Greek mythology, right? Jupiter is you know a, a Greek god, um, and his wife was called Juno. Were you aware of that? I was not. Yeah, that's a wonderful and, connection. And the story goes that uh, Jupiter himself was was quite a naughty boy in his time, and Juno picked up the clouds to see underneath the clouds to see what J- Jupiter was doing. Uh, so I love the fact that there's this kind of like the, this this spacecraft is called Juno and it's kind of lifting up the curtains and the clouds and letting us see what these these planets and these moons look like. I think there's a and wonderful it's final connection. mission. It's yeah, final mission will do exactly that, right? Yeah. So um, it's 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 just lovely the way they've they've named these things over the years and uh, how it kind of ties into the the. Yeah, seeing seeing things that we haven't seen before. Uh, so that's it's it's quite fun. 
And I'm so glad that these missions are a success, right? Because yeah. how many of these could, you know, the rocket could blow up or, you know, the Mars rover could be damaged on impact uh, and is inoperable. Yeah. Um, uh, like the, the what, was it a, a rover or some ground-based mission that India was sending to the moon, which has now spread tardigrades all over the moon? Great. Yeah. Thank you for that, India. What, what was um, the one? Wasn't there one where we mistaked miles for meters as well? So it, it collided straight into the planet because it, you remember that? I can't that might remember. have been the same one. I think the yeah. the, the India one. But no, I think um, I think that may have been a, a a sort of a Western world one where we got the calculations. My point still holds <laughs> that the 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 missions that crash we forget about. <laughs> yeah, you know, the, the, uh, you know, we're we're down on our luck for a little while, and then we you know uh, have a rallying cry behind the next one, which hopefully will be a success. And we've we've been lucky, I guess, to have so many successes, uh, including Juno, which had its mission extended uh, to create these images. And uh, check that out at DP Review, and the link to that will be at photogeekweekly.com. It's a wonderful, um, wonderful story, and it, it really is incredible what we've done in space, not just from the the, the travel perspective, but the imagery that, you know, for us photo geeks, the, the imagery that is, is being taken in space and on these missions will probably have an impact in our photography world somewhere down the line, right? That kind of um, science, that kind of mathematical computation will probably end up in the devices we have in our pockets. Uh, undoubtedly. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm sure that there's technology that's, you know, being developed to solve problems that we didn't have before. Uh, and uh, even uh, look at other uh, space uh, probes. Uh, the New Horizons probe is still taking images. Like it, it blew past yeah, Pluto a long past, time ago. Yeah, way past um, where it was meant to go. But it's still finding like little bits of, uh, you know, extreme uh, distant orbital rocks in the, the belts of, of stuff um, uh, in, in the more distant solar system. It's still going. Yeah. Right? We can still talk to these things. We can still, still talk to Voyager still 2. Still sending a signal back to us. It's incredible. Yeah. Um, so, wow. It's, uh, it's great that we're still doing that. Okay. Um, let, uh, let's go into our picks of the week. Uh, before we do that, I do want to just mention uh, again, Alistair, where people can find you online. We know that you are um, one of the uh, uh, you know the people waving the the banners at uh, SmugMug and Flickr. But if people wanted to follow you personally online, where could people go? Yeah. So yeah, the official title is Global Brand Manager at SmugMug and Flickr. Um, but yeah. Waving the flag, I like that as well. Um, you will find me on Flickr at Alistair Jolly. That's A L A S T A I R G O W Y. Um, you will find me most places as Alistair Jolly, and there's not many of us. Um, so you know, on Instagram, Flickr, um, and then you'll also find my personal SmugMug uh, account at amg.smugmug.com. Cool. E M G. A for Alpha. M for Mother, G for Juliet. It's my initials. Alistair ah. Morrison Jolly. There you go. Scottish accent. When we say A, everybody hears E. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for the clarification. Um, uh, so be sure you uh, you follow uh, Alistair because I, I do know that he still does some great work. I mean, you're not doing the weddings and stuff anymore, but no. I do keep uh, keep tabs on uh, on what you're shooting. Uh, everybody should uh, be part of the community, folks. Yes. Okay. Um, on to the picks of the week. I'm going to start, uh, and it really doesn't have much to do with photography, but uh, I, I like to geek out about many things, and I haven't honestly been picking up my camera much in the last little while because I've been signing and shipping books. So a part of that process was having a good pen. 
And uh, so this pick of the week is uh, the Lamy Studio Pen. It's a fountain pen, although it's available as a rollerball or a, a ballpoint pen as well. It's just a really well-made uh, fountain pen. I've always liked the design of Lamy pens. Um, this one has a nice, it's got a nice little clip on it. Uh, you can replace the nibs on it. I put a gold nib on it because I was trying to be fancier. And they make one that's all black, really nice, sleek pen. Um, most people don't have a good pen anymore. Like you just go to Staples and you just buy whatever. Uh, and uh, the fancy ones that they might sell there might cost you $20 for a pen. Um, but a good pen, it's worth having, uh, especially when I'm signing thousands of books. Uh, so this one uh, costs just under $120 US, which might seem like a lot for a pen. But uh, so long as you don't lose it, uh, you only ever really need one good pen. And the Lamy Studio, they make a, an LX black version. It's a limited edition that's completely black. I absolutely love it. It fits well in my hand. It writes beautifully. And I use it for anything like jotting little notes on my on my desk here to signing my books or signing contracts. Um, helpful to have a nice pen. And that gets my recommendation. If anybody were to ask me, Don, what pen should I buy? That would be the one. Oh my gosh, pens are amazing. There's the way you and I geek out about photography. There are people who have shows about pens and geek out. I have a wonderful friend, Schmoo, who lives in Germany, and she just, you know, curates this wonderful collection of pens. Not just the pen, the nibs, the ink, the paper she uses. It's it's a minefield. Oh yeah, I mean, I, I'm using uh, a Canadian exclusive ink from a, uh, a company called Noodlers, um, and uh, I think uh, Nathan Tardif is the uh, the guy behind that company that makes all sorts of eccentric inks with uh, interesting names. And so all of my books are signed with the Raven Forevermore black ink, um, and uh, I. I tried a whole bunch of them and it dried quickly enough. And, uh, and so it's what all those books have been, been signed with. Um, so yeah, you can totally geek out about pens oh, and you can spend sure. multiple thousands of dollars on a pen. Uh, people do this and like limited edition, uh, you know, engraved ivory pens, which I don't condone. Uh, but you know, they exist out there on, on the, on the market. And, um, so, Hey, you know, uh, pens are something to totally for, for many geek people out about. Yeah, for many people, it's a tool, just like we invest in computers and cameras. You know, for them, it's their their tool, so it's it's worth having a nice one. You know, as you've yeah. discovered, signing hundreds and hundreds of books. Right? And I I did do the uh, the hundred dollar upgrade on the pen. It almost cost as much as the pen itself to get a uh, a gold plated uh, nib, fourteen karat gold nib on there, because if you're going to do it, if you're going to go uh, halfway there. Uh, and you're going to be signing thousands of things with it. You might as well just kind of make it slightly more luxurious. So yeah. if you see my signature in a book uh, coming your way soon, you'll know exactly what instrument applied the ink to the paper. Um, now, all right. That being said, uh, I'm really curious what your pick of the week is. My pick of the week this week is, is a camera, but it's a camera app. I have uh, become a huge fan of Halide 2, the camera app um, on my iPhone. Um, just a wonderful app that I've really enjoyed using. I love the interface. I love, you know, combining that with the ability to shoot RAW now on the iPhones. Yeah, um, I wanted to ask you yeah. about that. How how good is this app at dealing with RAW data now that that's a universally accessible thing? Yeah, well, it's all, it's, 
uh, if I'm right, it's always had DNG raw uh, capabilities, but now it also does um, Apple's is it Pro Raw? Um, yeah. So it does Pro that, Raw. and I shouldn't say universal. It's only on the iPhone 12 yeah. Pro yeah. and uh, and and the Pro Max, but um, but but it is it, it's available. Uh, on on those models without having to do any extensive trickery, you know. Um, yeah, it's, it's native first feature, time. Yeah, yeah uh, very first time that they rolled out DNG raw. Um, it was it was a tough thing to find. Uh, and then as they updated iOS, the apps g- gained better access to it. And yeah. um, and now uh, a native feature for Pro Raw. Um, do they do they deal with depth map information? Do they uh, do any extensive processing with that, or is it just using the the raw pixels to make magic? Yeah, I think I think they do a bit of both. They they have the ability to um, you know do some some magic on their end with their own files it takes, but I, I do think they have some access to let the Pro Raw um, do do some magic. I'm not sure if it has the full features that you know the native um, Apple camera is able to do with some of the computational stuff, but I find that when I'm shooting in RAW. I tend to not be wanting the camera to, to, to do too much. I want to kind of be in control when I'm shooting RAW. If I'm shooting a JPEG or something, you know, go at it. Do all the trickery you need to get this JPEG right. But, you know, if I'm going to the effort of shooting something in RAW, which you ha- just so that people know you have to turn on on your iPhone. You have to turn on. You the have capability. to go into the settings. You yeah. flick it on. And um, then once that's on, apps can utilize it, including yeah. the native app uh, from Apple. But once you flick it on in the settings, even going to the native app, you still have to turn it on there too. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And, and you know, it's probably a good thing that you have to turn it on because boy, it fills up your memory quick, right? These are these are <laughs> yeah. these are big files. So a lot of people will probably get shocked when they suddenly realize that their sixty-four gig iPhone isn't suddenly enough storage anymore. So um, yeah, just really enjoying the highlight app. I love uh, some of the focusing uh, UI that they have. Some really nice uh, interfaces there. Um, I also love supporting wonderful people in this industry, and there's a great team behind uh, Halide. Um, I've been very fortunate to have the, the the guys from Halide on Smug Mug Live talking about the app. So, uh, yeah, it's it's just been a lot of fun and something, again, that has inspired me to take photographs and some beautiful ones with an iPhone, which yeah, I'm really proud of and enjoy. And, and the app is is free um, now. It does say offers in app purchases, which probably mean uh, it, it's that not it free. There's a, a subscription. No, it's it's uh, it's probably free for a trial, and then I think it's uh, I think it is a subscription uh, to to use it. I'm not sure um, if there's. I, to be honest, I, I paid for the subscription, so I'm not sure what the free features are. But yeah, folks, I would anticipate that it's a it's a product worth paying for. All right. Well, we can uh, put a link to that in the show notes. And uh, I'm going to take, I don't actually have uh, a Halide. I, uh, I believe I may have had one of their earlier versions when I was using an older iPhone. Um, then I switched to Android for a bit. Now mm-hmm. I'm back on uh, an iPhone with the, uh, uh, the 12 Pro. I'm going to check this out. Uh, and uh, maybe in a future episode, I will relay my opinion of the software as well, especially how it compares to the built-in camera app, which for most people, is good enough, right? Yep. Uh, but if you want to have a little bit more wiggle room control, as you mentioned, uh, especially when you're shooting raw, um, which I, the, the cameras in these things are getting so good. Um, I, I often don't take a small point and shoot camera with me anymore, as much as I love my, my GX9. Um, and I use that for studio work and it's got a, I've got a good collection of macro lenses and stuff for it um, that, uh, 
that the iPhone can't properly replicate, at least not yet. Um, the the casual snaps of the day are often done just with the phone now because oh, yeah. it's really uh, it's kind of bridging that gap. I would say most the most pictures I take these days are on on the 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 phone. Um, the my my point and shoot my compact camera is my iPhone these days, especially with the multiple lenses, the stabilization, that type of stuff. So, and I shoot a lot with my mirrorless cameras. But I still probably shoot more with with my my phone. I probably don't use it as a phone that much, but I use it as a camera yeah. a lot. <laughs> I am pretty sure we're all in the same boat. Yeah. At least those listening to this podcast. Um, so yeah, why not make that experience even better? Thank you for that recommendation, Alistair, and thank you for being on uh, on this episode of Photo Geek Weekly. Uh, Anybody can uh, check out the show notes again at photogeekweekly.com uh, where all the links to the stories and where you can find Alistair will be. Um, and just as, as we wind off uh, this episode, just as a, a little extra thing, uh, an experiment that I was doing uh, that is still up and running right now uh, is I decided to mint an NFT of one of my images. Um, uh, I figured the uh, the snowflake, which is a collage of over 400 snowflakes that took me 2,500 hours across five years to create. I decided to put that up on OpenSea um, and uh, it is available for auction for at least a few more days. If anybody has any Ethereum that has any interest in NFTs whatsoever, it is there as an experiment. I'm not actively promoting it in many ways, but I just uh, wanted to put that out there to the Photo Geek Weekly community. If you are at all interested in my work, it might be the only NFT that I mint, uh, especially because that market is very experimental at this time. Um, but uh, as far as uniqueness goes, that is about as unique as an image can get uh, in terms of the subject matter, the time involved in it, uh, and what the final product was. So uh, check that out. I'll make sure that the link to that is in the show notes as well. Uh, Again, thank you to everybody for listening to this podcast. Thank you, Alistair, for being here. Uh, and it's time to stay in and shoot. Mm -hmm.